Thank you, Jim. If you would, take out your Bibles with me and open them up to the book of Romans, chapter 2. Book of Romans, chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, we provide Bibles for you in the seats. If you look in the seats in front of you, you should find one. And uh, you'll find this passage this morning on page 940 in these Bibles. And I want to give you a warning up front. This is one of those messages where I need you to make sure that your minds are turned on. There's some heavy thinking that must go on if we're going to understand this passage this morning. Uh, The issues in this passage are a little difficult, and the stakes could not be higher. And so I want to ask you now, if you're you're already wondering about lunch or other things, let me bring you back here and ask that you turn your minds on and be ready to think, because this is important, um, but it does require some some effort. Um, Preaching can be hard sometimes, listening to preaching can be hard sometimes, and I am very much aware of that. And uh, sometimes it requires work, and so I hope that uh, you will worship God by your work in listening uh, to the preaching. Let's begin reading uh, in chapter 2, verse 1, and we'll go through verse 11. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Because of your hard and impenitent heart, You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, and God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first, and also the Greek, glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also the Greek. And here's the principle, for God shows no partiality. Let me remind you of the big picture of what's going on so far In our study of the book of Romans, the key theme of this book is Romans 1, 16 through 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written. The righteous shall live by faith. In other words, what's driving this letter is Paul's love for the gospel and Paul's desire to communicate to you and to communicate to me the supreme importance of the gospel. He loves the gospel. 
Paul has suffered greatly for the gospel. He bears the marks of his suffering on his back where flesh was ripped off of him for the sake of the gospel. He wants this church to partner with him and getting the gospel to those who have never heard it. And in order for them to want to partner with him, they need to share in his love for the gospel. And in order for us to be a missionary Baptist church, we need to have that same passion for the gospel. And so this book of Romans is all about the gospel. This message of Christ crucified for sinners. In chapter 1, verse 18 through 32, Paul begins showing why humanity needs the gospel so badly. He goes to great lengths to show us our depravity. He has shown us that all people are naturally under God's wrath. Rightfully so. He shows that it is not God who is wicked. It is we who are wicked. And God who is good. And that's why His judgment is on us. Now there are some who might read chapter 1 verses 18 through 32 and assume that they are not included. In particular, the Jewish people of Paul's day would have been inclined to assume that Romans chapter 1 verses 18 through 32 about the depravity of the human race was speaking about every other person on the planet but the Jews. They were the exception because they are the children of Abraham. They are the chosen people of God. Surely, God is going to deal differently with them than everybody else. Surely, on the day of judgment, they will be treated as special and will receive some sort of special treatment that the rest of the world will not know. Paul's purpose in Romans 2 is to show that even the Jews are under God's righteous wrath. And apart from the gospel... They will be judged by Him and consigned to hell on the day of judgment. He does this in verses 1 through 5, which we looked at last week, by addressing their judgmental attitude towards others and showing how their judgmental attitude towards others will stand as evidence against them on the day of judgment. And now, in verses 6 through 11... Paul argues that God will show no partiality in His judgment of men. God will judge all people, Jew or Gentile, man or woman, rich or poor, black or white or Hispanic, educated, uneducated. He will judge all people according to their deeds. What they've reaped. They will sow. You see that in verse 6? He will render to each one according to his works. Verse 11, for God shows no partiality. But wait a minute. minute. What about the Jews? Don't they have some kind of priority? I mean, don't, don't the Jews have something about them that makes them special? Well, Paul says that the Jews will be special in this way they will be the first judged. 
God gave them blessings over and above all the other nations. It was the Jews who had the law. It was the Jews who had God's presence in their midst. It was the Jews who had the prophets. And all of this was given to point them to faith in God. And therefore, Paul says, those Jews who believed in the Lord, they will be the first to enter eternal life. Those Jews who did not believe will be the first to enter eternal punishment. Verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first, and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also the Greek. So the Jews will be special in that they will be judged first, but God will not judge them differently than He judges the Gentiles. God will show no partiality. Now, I want to open up this passage under three headings. Number one, we'll spend almost all our time on this one. Works matter. Works matter. There is an issue in this passage that makes it very difficult for many, and you may have already seen it, and you may have already thought of it, and the issue is this. Is Paul teaching in this passage that people are saved by works? I mean, Paul describes two kinds of people in this passage. There's the negative person, the one in verse 8 and verse 9. And in verses 8 and 9, this person is described as self-seeking, disobedient to the truth, obeying unrighteousness, doing evil. And that man is said to receive wrath and fury and tribulation and distress on the day of judgment. You see that in the verse? Now that teaching has no problem for us because it is in full agreement with what the Bible teaches. But it's the other man, the one described in in verses 7 and 10. This positive example, this man who is patient in well-doing, this man who is seeking glory, honor, and immortality, the one who in verse 10 we're told does good, and this man is said to receive eternal life, glory, honor, peace from God. In other words, if you just had these five verses, you might be tempted to think that this man earns his eternal life by his good works. How do we handle that? Well, first, we we know that this can't be right because Paul makes very clear throughout the book of Romans and throughout the New Testament in his letters that salvation is not by works, but by faith alone. I mean, just look a page over, Romans 3, verse 28. Romans 3, verse 28. Romans 3, verse 28. For we hold... That no one, I'm sorry, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. We are counted righteous before God, justified not by works of the law, but by faith. By faith apart from works of the law. So the message of God is clear on this issue. And there appears to be no conflict in Paul's mind between saying we're justified by faith alone and God will render to each one according to his works. 
To which we say, Paul, which is it? I mean, our souls are on the line here. This is, not a, this is not a minor issue. This is heaven and hell. And God, you have, we believe that you have spoken to us in your Bible and we want to know how we can be with you forever in heaven. And so we're coming to your Bible to teach us which is it? Is it he will render to us according to our works or is it we will be saved by faith alone? How do we deal with that? Well, many faithful, godly commentators have solved this issue by saying that the kind of person being described in verse 7 and verse 10 is a kind of person that no one other than Christ has ever been or can ever be. That is, that what Paul is teaching here is that if there was such a person who was patient and well-doing, Is that you? Is that me? Probably not. If there was such a person who was seeking glory, honor, and immortality, doing good, if there was such a person, God would reward them with eternal life. But we all know no such person exists. And therefore, we're saved by faith and not works. I mean, Paul will say in just a few verses, Romans 3, verse 12, no one does good, no, not even one. And thus the position of some commentators is that Paul is describing how God would respond on the day of judgment if there was a person who appeared before him who had lived perfectly. But since none of us can ever be that person, this is a hypothetical situation. On the day we stand before God, he will not render to us according to our works, but according to Christ's work. For Christians, according to these commentators, verse 6 is not true of us. And for those of you who know your theologians, this is the position of Calvin, Charles Hodge, John Murray, and Douglas Moo. And those are men whose commentaries I would recommend to anybody. And yet I want to suggest to you that I don't think that interpretation is best. Because it seems to me that Paul is not speaking of a hypothetical person in verses 7 and 10. He says that God will render to each one according to his works. The book of 2 Corinthians, Paul says the same thing directly to Christians. When we turn to Revelation 20, we see, Revelation 21, we see all, no, it is Revelation 20, we see all the earth before God judged according to their works. I think Paul is telling telling us that this is going to happen and that there will be people who will be judged according to their works and they will receive eternal life. Okay. So who are these people who will receive eternal life according to their works? Well, they're Christians. They are those who by faith in Jesus have been changed and are now producing good fruit. 
They will not receive eternal life on the basis of their good works. No, they will receive eternal life on the basis of Christ and His work. But they will receive eternal life according to their works. Now, I know this is tough. told you to keep your minds on. Think about it this way and see if this helps. How can we know what we should expect from God on the day of judgment? How can you sitting in this room this morning discern at this moment what God will do with you on the last day? The Jews would have said, we know what God is going to do with us. We have Abraham's blood running through our veins. God will treat us well. And Paul seems to be saying no. If you want to know how God will treat you on the day of judgment, don't look to your family tree. Look to your works. Look to your deeds. Here before you is set two kinds of people, just like in Psalm 1 that we sung earlier. Two kinds of people. One that is patient in well-doing, the other that is self-seeking. Which are you most like? Which reflects your life? Only those who have been changed by the Spirit of God, brought to faith in Christ, being transformed by His grace, will be able to look at the positive man in this passage and say, yes, I see something of me there. I still have a long way to go, but there are traces of me in that person in verses 7 and 10. And therefore I have reason for assurance and I have reason for hope. Because God is at work in me and my life is beginning to show it. In other words, the truth, this truth that God judges according to works is a truth that is meant to lead us to repentance and to Christ. And then as Christ changes us, it leads us to assurance of salvation and confidence about our future. How many in this room this morning are longing for some assurance of salvation? And how many in this room need to be awakened to the truth that they have no salvation? Hear this. Consider your works. Consider the fruit being produced by your life. The fruit being produced by your life is the greatest evidence of what you can expect from God on the day of judgment. According to Romans 2, verses 6 through 11, if your life is characterized by works of selfishness and by evil, you can expect wrath. But if by God's grace your life is characterized by well-doing and good you have reason to expect life. Just as we can discern the condition of others by looking at their fruit, so we can begin to get a grasp on our own condition by looking at the fruit of our lives. Now, I need to prove to you that this is the right way to read this passage. I need to prove to you that these people described in verse 7 and verse 10 are not hypothetical people who, who could exist, but they don't exist, so it doesn't matter. No, that these are, that verse 7 and verse 10 is describing Christians. Let me tell you why I think this is true. 
Number one, the context in which it comes. When we look at Paul's train of thought in this passage, we see that he has just been speaking of those people who are impenitent. Those people who refuse to repent. In verses 4 and 5, God has been describing for us how God's kindness is meant to lead people to repentance. And how those who do not repent are storing up wrath for themselves. Now it seems to me that Paul is still thinking on those lines in verses 6, 7, 8, 19, and 11. That the good man of verses 7 and 10 is the same as one who repents. And that the evil man of verses 8 and 9 is the same as one who is impenitent. Second, there are other places in the book of Romans where Paul speaks of a Christian's life of holiness. His or her good deeds and works and piety reaping the reward of eternal life. Turn with me to Romans 6. Just a couple pages over. Romans 6, beginning in verse 20. I hope you're with me. I hope you understand what, what I'm trying to do here. I'll help you see why it's important in a few minutes, but please stick with me on this. I'm trying to show you why I believe... Verses 7 and 10 of chapter 2 is referring to Christians who will be judged according to their works on the day of salvation. In Romans 6, beginning in verse 20, we read this. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end, those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice what Paul was saying here. Before you were saved, when you were a slave to sin, the kind of fruit that was coming out of your life when you were a slave to sin was the kind of fruit that ends in death. You see that? Death here is hell. The wages of sin is, is death, eternal death. But now that you have been saved by Jesus, now that He has removed those chains so that you are no longer in bondage to sin, but now you are a servant, a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ, you're getting a different kind of fruit, a kind of fruit that does not lead to death, but a kind of fruit that leads to, you see the big word, sanctification? You see that? So the fruit that should be coming out of your life as a Christian is the fruit that leads to holiness which is what's at the root of the word sanctification. And the fruit in your life that's leading you to, over time, gradually become holy has a reward. And what is the reward? Eternal life. And this is ultimately a gift of God given in Christ Jesus. Here's how I understand Paul. God gives eternal life to those who produce good fruit. And those who produce good fruit only do so as a gift 
given through the Lord Jesus Christ. For there is no other way to produce good fruit in your life. Let me at Romans 8, verse 13. Romans 8, verse 13. This one is very clear. Very clear. Romans 8, 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will what? But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So here is death and here is life. And these refer to heaven and hell. And if we live according to the flesh, that is, live in self-seeking, if we're doing evil, Paul says, we will die. But if by the Spirit we will put those deeds to death, therefore, living righteously, you will live. Now, dear friends, is this salvation by works? No. Can any of you live righteously apart from faith in Christ? Can any of you put to death the sin in your life apart from faith in Christ and His giving of the Holy Spirit to you? No. This is salvation based on faith in Jesus Christ, but it is a salvation that shows itself in your life. The Bible knows nothing of a person who calls himself a Christian, but there's no evidence, there's no fruit. The Bible says there's no assurance for that person. If you don't begin to see change in your life, if you don't begin to see works of the Spirit and putting to death deeds of the body, if you don't begin to see a seeking after glory and honor and immortality, doing good, you have no reason to think that God's going to treat you well on the day of judgment. Third evidence is that there are passages outside the book of Romans that make very clear that God will deal with us according to our works and that the good deeds of Christians will reap eternal life. I'm just going to draw your attention to one. Turn with me to the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians, chapter 6. In verse 8. Galatians 6 and verse 8. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. What will we reap? Well, he said it in verse 8, right? He who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. That's what we want. We want eternal life from God on the day of judgment. We want to hear Him say, welcome into eternal life. That's what we want to hear. How do we reap that? What does it mean to sow to the Spirit? Verse 9, do not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. The Spirit which comes and dwells in us through faith in Jesus works in us 
so that we will will and do according to what God commands. If you are not beginning to will and to do according to God's commands, you do not have the Spirit of God. And if you do not have the Spirit of God, it's because you've never been saved. You can't walk according to the Spirit if you don't have the Spirit. You can't be led by the Spirit if you don't have the Spirit. You can't do the works of the Spirit if you don't have the Spirit. And the Spirit only comes to us when by God's grace we are born again and He comes and lives in us by faith in Jesus. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Paul says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. What does it mean to work out your salvation? It means to do those good deeds that now you are able to do because God dwells in you. Ephesians 2.10 For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You as a Christian, if you've been saved, are part of God's workmanship. Christ has, has begun a work in you. And that work is, that, is, is not just so that one day you will be with Him in heaven. He has works for you to be doing on the earth today. And when you believe in Jesus, He puts His Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, in your heart to begin enabling you and moving you to do those works which He has prepared for you to do in this life. If you are not doing those works which He has prepared for you to do in this life, you you do not have the Spirit and you do not have faith. In other words, I absolutely believe 100% and will die for it that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the word of alone, to the glory of God alone. I absolutely believe that. But let us not err on this side to say that means works don't matter. Don't let us say, well, if it's all of faith, then it doesn't matter how I live. It doesn't matter what fruit is in my life. Paul was saying just the opposite. If you look at your fruit, you'll know what you're headed for on the day of judgment. Works do matter. We are not saved by works. We are saved by Jesus Christ. But when Jesus Christ saves someone, He does so by enabling them and moving them to do good works. And that's why I take the person of verse 7 and 10 of Romans 2 to be a Christian. Go back there, Romans 2. I want to quote from Thomas Schreiner to sum up the argument. This is very, very important if we want to discern our eternal destiny. Let me add a parenthesis here. Mount Hermon, could it be that some of you are tired of hearing me speak week in and week out about heaven and hell as we study Romans? Could it be that you are uninterested in this subject of the day of judgment? My question to you is how can this be? This day that is in your future and my future is the most important day of your life. For Christians, it will be our wedding day. 
the day our bridegroom comes to take us to himself. You show me a bride-to-be who doesn't think about her wedding day. As Christians, we are to look forward to this day. We're to long for this day. We're to want to know everything we can about this day. The day of what we call the day of judgment. It's also called the day of salvation in the New Testament for us. It ought to be constantly in our thoughts. It ought to be one of our favorite subjects. And for non-Christians, for unbelievers, this is the day when your death sentence is carried out. This is the day of entering hell. You would do very well to pay attention to these words. Maybe you want me to talk about other things. You know, how to have a happy marriage, how to be a good employee or a good employer, how to... We we do talk about those things, and we will talk about those things, but those are not the most important things. This ought to be the subject most in the world which deserves your attention and your interest. Listen carefully. You will be held accountable for what you are hearing. Let me quote from Tom Schreiner, New Testament professor, Southern Seminary, Southern Baptist. And what he says about this passage, I think he's right. He says, even though Paul asserts that no one can attain salvation by good works, which is his point in Romans 3 verse 20, he also insists that no one can be saved without them. And that they are necessary to obtain an eschatological importance, which is his point in chapter 2, verse 7, verse 10, and as we'll see next week or tonight, verse 13. We are not saved by good works, but we cannot be saved without them either. The Spirit's work in a person produces obedience to the law. The saving work of Jesus Christ radically changes people so that they can now obey the law they previously disobeyed. The works that are necessary for salvation, therefore, do not constitute an earning of salvation, but they are an evidence of the salvation already given. The transforming work of the Spirit accompanies and cannot be separated from the justifying work of God. I'm justified. I'm counted righteous with God. But I don't have the Holy Spirit and there's no evidence of His work in my life. You cannot have that. If you are justified with God, you have the Spirit and His work is being shown in your life. If you don't have the whole package, you have none of the package. Such good works manifest the work of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. We should also stress that Paul is not demanding perfect obedience, but simply obedience that is significant, substantial, and observable. Now, very quickly, my last two points. We'll fly through these. They are important. Look at the negative person, the negative example, verses 8 and 9. This is an unbeliever. This is the impenitent man or woman. This person described in verse 8 
is self-seeking. You know what it means to be self-seeking. This person is described as one who does not obey the truth. The truth is the truth about God. Everybody knows this truth. Whether they want to admit it or not, every person knows that there is a God and that He's worthy of honor and thanksgiving. That was Romans 1, verses 18, 19, 20, 21. We already covered that. This person knows that truth, but rather than heeding that truth and obeying God, this person disobeys that truth. Maybe that's some of you in here. I don't know. This person obeys unrighteousness. When that sinful impulse arises in the heart to think that thought or to say that word or to do that deed, this person in his slavery to sin obeys that impulse. And thus, as verse 9 says, this person does evil. And what will this person receive? Wrath, fury, tribulation, Distress are the four words Paul uses. These words refer to the righteous anger of God poured out on the wicked intensely and unapologetically. And these words refer to the utter turmoil and distress that they will feel on that day and forevermore. Unbeliever, You have sinned against an infinite God. You have committed crimes that are more evil than you yet realize. And you will receive a punishment that is appropriate and just and fair. Unless, as Paul desires, as I desire, as God desires, you turn to Christ. And you believe in Him as crucified for you. And you turn to Him in faith for salvation. Finally, point number three is the positive example. The good man, the Christian. Talked about in verses 7 and 10. We're told that this person is patient in well-doing. See if this describes you. If you want to know where you are with God, see if this describes you. The Christian is described as one who is, faith, uh, who, I'm sorry, who is patient in well-doing. Which means that his good deeds are not spotty, are not occasional. Rather, this person is patient in doing good. He, he or she continues to do good, enduringly, steadfastly. His or her life is, is characterized by well-doing, doing good things. Next, we see that this person seeks for glory. This is not the glory being sought after in Vancouver. This is not looking for glory in the eyes of man. This is a a person who is seeking after the glory of holiness, the glory of being conformed to the image of Jesus. Are you seeking after that kind of glory? If you have the Spirit, you should be longing for the glory of holiness. I want to be a better husband. I want to be a better father. I want to be a better preacher. Therefore, God, make me patient. Make me me kind. Make me gentle. I want to be holy. I ought to be in your heart. The fact that this person is seeking after glory shows that we're not talking about a perfect man here. This is not a hypothetical perfect person. This is a Christian who is seeking after this. 
We see this person is seeking for honor. This is not seeking honor among men, seeking to be honored by others. This is seeking for honor from the Lord. This is the burning desire that ought to be in the heart of every Christian to hear the Lord Jesus say to us, Well done, my good and faithful servant. That's the honor we want. Is that the desire of your heart? Do you love your Savior so much that you are driven by the thought that on that great day you might have the great prize of hearing Jesus speak well of you. Oh, to think of Jesus seeing His work in your life and honoring you. And of course, as He honors you, He is honoring His own goodness and His own power and His own grace. For you on that day would be a trophy of His grace. We're told that this Christian seeks for immortality. I think this simply is added by Paul to make clear that the glory and the honor he's talking about are not a temporal, worldly glory and honor that's here today and gone tomorrow. This is the glory and honor that comes with immortality. It lasts, it comes with eternal life. The Greeks and the Romans and some of the Olympic athletes today maybe think that glory and honor and immortality come from doing well in competition or come from doing well in battle, come from doing well in war. And if you do great in those things, then the story of your name will be told for centuries to come. And that's glory and honor and power. That kind of glory and that kind of honor pales in comparison with that given by the Lord Jesus to those who reflect His glory and good works. We do not achieve glory and honor and immortality by being a great warrior who slays many people, but by being great warriors who slay our own sin. The way we obtain glory and honor and immortality is not through violence towards others, but by serving others. It is the last who will be counted first in the kingdom of heaven. It is the least who will be counted as the greatest. Christ was the greatest person who ever lived, and he was a servant of all. And that's the pattern for us to follow. This person does good. What does this person, the Christian, receive? Verse 7 says eternal life. Verse 10 says glory, honor, and peace. Is that not what you want? I think it's obvious how I should close this message. The only way that you can become a person who desires holiness and does genuinely good works is by faith in Christ. Romans 14, 23 says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Which means if you are not living by faith in Jesus, resting in Him, looking to Him, counting on Him, you can do nothing good in the eyes of God. But if you come to Jesus in faith, you can truly do good deeds and God can use you mightily. And you will receive eternal life. The only way that you can have the strength and the means to become a good man or a good woman, a good husband or a good wife, a good father or a good mother, a good employee, employer, friend, church member, citizen, person, is if you stop looking to yourself and look Christ.
Unbeliever, do not resist Christ. Turn to Him in faith and show it by being baptized. Get into a church where God can use His Word, His Spirit, and His people to grow you into maturity. Do not refuse this gracious gift. And Christian, examine yourself. Ask others in this room who know you and love you for their thoughts about what they see in your life. And ask them to be honest. Is there evidence of grace in your life? Is there fruit that matches your profession? And if there is, praise the Lord. Let this deter you from sin. Know that every time that you sin, you are building the case against you, providing reason why you should question your own salvation. For the sake of your assurance, for the sake of peace in your heart, strive for holiness and flee from sin. We can do all things, even slay our sins and live for righteousness through Christ who gives us strength. So hold fast to that promise and live for Christ's glory. Are you with me? Let's pray. If you're an unbeliever in this room, if you're one of those who, if you look at the fruit and the evidence,